front of you a copy of the little outline that we're going to be using this morning. So we want to do that as quickly as possible. There should be plenty for everyone. And uh, so we want every one of you to have one. Now, our brother Randy Skeet asked us to do a favor last night. And I'm asking you to do a favor for me this morning. Listen carefully. Please do not believe what I say because I say it. Because if you do, you will listen to someone a week from now, a month from now, or six months from now that is much more charismatic and much more persuasive than I am, and you will believe what he or she says for the same reason. The only reason to believe in anything that I say this morning is because the Word of God says so, and you know it for yourself, not because I say it. And I say that particularly because this morning we're going to do an overview. I am not going to open the Bible one time during the next hour. I am going to share with you some concepts that I want you to think about. And then I am going to ask you to read and study from the Word of God whether these things are so. That's what we're going to be doing this afternoon. We will have outlines this afternoon. We will, have, we will go into the Word of God this afternoon. But the only reason to believe what I'm going to say is because the Word of God supports it, not because of any human words that we speak. So that is the favor I'm going to ask of you. Now, we are told that we must take the three angels' messages and the everlasting gospel to the world. Are we very, very sure that we know what the everlasting gospel is? Because if we do not share the everlasting gospel, we are not bringing people out of the world. We are leaving them in the world and comfortable in the world. So the real question that I want to ask this morning is what is special, what is unique, what is different about Seventh-day Adventism? And it is not the Sabbath. And it is not the state of man in death. And it is not what we teach about the soon coming of Christ. I believe and I submit to you that what is unique and different and what we are offering that no one else in the world is offering is an understanding of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And without that, we have no message to share. So I want us to think about those things this morning and let us ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, direct our minds to you this morning. Help us by your Holy Spirit working on our hearts to understand the beautiful gospel of grace and peace. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. All right, we're going to start with those outlines that you have in front of you. Two Gospels, two different understandings of salvation. They both start with an understanding of sin because the Gospel is about deliverance from sin. So what is this thing that condemns us? And the real question is very precise now. What is the nature of that sin for which I stand condemned and lost for all eternity. If it is not taken away from me, I will end up in the fires of hell. What is the nature of that sin? Look at the tree, the gospel tree, on the left side of your page. We will start with that gospel. 
This gospel says that sin, the sin for which we are lost and condemned, is not what we say, not what we do, not even what we think. But it is the sin of being born with a defective nature because Adam made a horrible decision 6,000 years ago. And because he made that decision, we are lost and condemned by nature, by the defective equipment that resides within us. That is our condemnation. That's what this gospel teaches, that this is our condemnation. Now this morning, I'm going to be reading little things as we go along. Remember one thing as I read them. Every statement that I'm going to read will be from a Seventh-day Adventist of one kind or another, a writer, a teacher, a minister, a layperson, whatever. All the statements will be from various Seventh-day Adventists. Here is one who believes what I've just told you. A baby is born a sinner before it has ever committed one sinful act. That is the teaching of sin as nature. A baby is born a sinner before it has ever committed one sinful act. Now, what is the implication of that? Here is another author. This sinful state that you inherit, just like you inherit the color of your hair and your eyes, this sinful state means that if a baby dies a few hours after birth, he, she is subject to the second death, even though he, she has never broken any commandment. That is the implication of this teaching that sin is the nature we are born with. And of course, most Christians have solved this problem by infant baptism to remove the guilt and the condemnation from that baby who is subject to the second death. So that's the first point of this very important gospel tree on the left side of your page. What is the second point? Why, that's obvious, isn't it? If our nature makes us a sinner before we've ever done or said anything wrong, if our equipment makes us a sinner and Christ is our sinless Savior, then what can't Christ have? Our nature. Because then He would be a sinner too. And He couldn't save anybody. So if Christ is to be our Savior, He must be exempted from our equipment. He must not have the same tendencies, the same emotions, the same drives, the same feelings that you and I have by birth. He must be exempted, and He takes a sinless nature. Those two go right together. Now these two points are so basic to this gospel that we're describing right here that I want to go back and look at them carefully again. The first one, sin as nature. So here I am. I'm born as a child, a baby into this world. I am born under the condemnation of God's law because I have a fallen nature, bad equipment inside. All right. So when then will I no longer be under condemnation because of this nature? When will I no longer be condemned by my nature? When I'm baptized, what happens? My nature stays underwater, doesn't it, while I come up out of, the, out of the water? And we don't have that nature anymore, right? Or totally wrong? You mean you still have that nature within you that you were born with? And it still pulls and tugs at your heart? Well, then it didn't disappear. All that happened at baptism to that nature is that it was forgiven. And you are now forgiven for that nature. But the nature still condemns, according to this gospel. Well, let's try a tougher question. At the close of probation, when we receive the seal of God, 
And from that time forth, the Bible says, he that is holy shall be holy still. Does that fallen nature, with all of its pulls and impulses and drives that we inherited at birth, does it disappear then? Is it removed out of us so that there is no longer any tug from within to the wrong? Does it go away at the seal of God? I'm glad to hear you say no. We had a problem in that uh, area about 100 years ago in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And some people were teaching that that's why we wouldn't sin again, is because there would be no more pulls from within at all. And therefore, we would have freedom from sinning in our lives. It's called holy flesh. It's coming back, my friends. No, we do not lose our natures at the seal of God. Well, when do we lose these fallen natures that we inherited? When do they go away? When Jesus comes and this mortal is made immortal and this corruptible is turned into incorruption. All right, so watch carefully. I am condemned by nature at my birth. I am still condemned but forgiven when I am born again. After the seal of God and the close of probation, my nature is still the same nature it was when I was born. Therefore, I am still condemned by nature. I am still sinning by nature after the close of probation. And now I will continue to be forgiven until Jesus comes. And therefore, I am always sinning from birth to death or translation by nature until Jesus comes. That's what this gospel is teaching. In other words, sin is as constant as breathing. As long as you have your nature, you are sinning. Only when you will no longer have that nature within you will you no longer be sinning. Forgiveness is necessary from birth to death or translation. Always, constantly. That's what this gospel teaches. Now to the second point. Christ and his nature. You see, it really isn't about his nature at all. It's about how he was tempted. How was Christ tempted? What were the rules in the Garden of Eden? How were Adam and Eve tempted? Could Satan run around after them and harass them and give them a lot of trouble everywhere they went? The rules were very strict, weren't they? One tree, just one tree, not just in the garden, but in the entire world where Satan could access the minds of Adam and Eve. Not from inside, not when they were getting up, not when they were sitting down to eat, but one tree off there somewhere. Would you like those rules today? Up our way in Northern California, we have some beautiful redwood trees. I know you've seen them. Let's just say the tallest of those redwood trees was the tempting tree of our time today. Wouldn't that be nice for you folks around here? Don't go there. Don't go. And you won't be tempted. I, hindsight is great, isn't it? If I were advising Adam from hindsight, I would, have say, I would say to him, build a wall around that tree. Build it high. No doors, no windows. Just ignore that tree as if it were never there, and you'll be safe from temptation for the rest of eternity. Those were the rules. Did those rules stay the same when Adam and Eve sinned? Or did all of a sudden the rules change? Where was the tempting tree now? everywhere and anywhere, but particularly within my nature. As I used to tell my students, I don't need the devil to tempt me. I do a great job all by myself. <laughs> the tempting tree is within now. We are pulled from within. We are pulled when we get up, when we, sleep, when we, when we sit down, when we sleep at night. We're tempted. 
The pulls are there all of the time. So the question is very simple. How was Christ tempted? Was he tempted like Adam, from outside only? Or was he tempted like me, from outside and inside? What were the rules for Christ? And this gospel that we are discussing right now on the left-hand side of your page says it was like Adam, not like us. Because he was not tempted to be angry. He was not tempted to be proud. He was not tempted to overeat. He was not tempted to be selfish. Those things come from within. He was only tempted from the great temptation to abandon his mission and go back to heaven and, uh, and not carry out what God had sent him to do. Only from outside. Three times, basically, in his life, the wilderness, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the cross. And in all three, he went out there to find temptation. And then he met the devil on the devil's ground. That's what this gospel is teaching. Christ was not tempted in the ways that we are tempted. Now we move on. Third point. Now the rubber begins to hit the road. Justification is God's way of forgiving us for our sins. But you notice that it says justification only. Why? Let me share with you why. Justification is 100% Christ's work. Sanctification is a work done by us, aided by the indwelling Christ. Is a work done by us of any value in the salvation process? Does it merit anything? Can it give us anything? Well then, if sanctification is a work done by us with a little aid of the indwelling Christ, then it is obvious that sanctification cannot be part of the saving process. It is only a result of being saved. It is only an after effect of being justified or being saved. That's why justification only. Now, that's theological language. Let's break it down into practical terms. Here is the way one person says it. Doing wrong or even believing wrong does not necessarily imply a rejection of Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? Let's say I've been keeping the Sabbath, and I just decide that, hmm, I can't maintain my family. I can't keep my, my, my income level at a high enough level with uh, keeping the, my business closed on Sabbath. I've got to open my business because it is a, a man's duty to take care of his family. So I must open my business, and we do so. Will that having made my commitment to keep the Sabbath, now having broken it, will that cost me my salvation? And this gospel says, wait a minute. Were you saved by keeping the Sabbath? Did that get you salvation? No. You were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and believing in Him as your Savior, weren't you? Well, then not keeping the Sabbath can't cost you your salvation either. Sabbath-keeping didn't bring you in. Sabbath-breaking can't take you out. You see, this gospel that I'm describing here is very simple. There's one way in the salvation and only one way out. The one way in is believing in Jesus as your personal Savior and accepting Him as your Lord and Master. And that is the way you are saved. The only way you can lose that salvation is to turn your back on Jesus Christ and say, I don't want you in my life anymore. And yes, you can lose your saving relationship with the Lord, this gospel says. But as long as you believe in Jesus, Sabbath breaking, withholding tithe, or whatever the issue may be, will not cost you your salvation. Let me read you just a few thoughts from someone who believes this gospel. Since right behavior 
is never the ground of our acceptance with God, wrong behavior cannot keep a person out of heaven. One is not lost by not keeping the Sabbath or giving up the Sabbath. One is saved because one chooses to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. The only way to lose that salvation is if a person chooses to reject that saving relationship. There you have it. The only way you can lose your relationship with Christ and salvation is to walk away from Christ. Doing wrong or even believing wrong, we are told, does not mean you are rejecting Jesus Christ. And that leads easily to the fourth point, doesn't it? Because we are born with a fallen nature, because we sin as constantly as we breathe, because we can only hope to be forgiven, because we can never overcome completely, the word perfection becomes a misused word. And it becomes a word that we need to drop out of our vocabulary. We need to abandon the concept because it will lead us into fanaticism and extremism. There you have the gospel. Well, what gospel have I just described to you? My friends, this is the gospel of Christianity that I've just described to you. This is the Christian gospel that is proclaimed throughout the Christian world. This has been the Christian gospel for 17 centuries of the Christian era. This is the gospel that is preached at the great Christian rallies in which thousands come down to the altar to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. This is mainstream orthodox Christianity that I've just described to you. It is no Johnny-come-lately. It is not something late on the scene. And just by the way, this is the gospel that my colleague, Dr. Desmond Ford, was bringing to America 30 years ago. And you say, well, we took care of that problem. That problem got settled. Guess who is a featured speaker one week from today at the Loma Linda Campus Hill Church? Someone from Australia wrote this, and we need to think very carefully, pastors from Australia. The church today believes essentially the same as Des on those very contentious issues for which he was dismissed. Subsequent Adventist thinking in North America seems to have moved closer to his position and further away from, those, from that of those who dismissed him. Why do I keep talking about this subject? And I've been talking about it for over 20 years now. Because it's bigger today and more crucial today than it was 30 years ago when Desmond Ford was in North America. It is a more dominating issue today in the Seventh-day Adventist Church than ever before. That's what this gospel is. It is the gospel of Christianity. It is the gospel that Christianity has been teaching for a long, long time. Now, you notice there are fruits in the branches of this tree. What fruits are born by this tree? Well, judgment. Is there any need for a judgment? What are you going to judge? Sabbath keeping? Tithe paying? Well, of course not. Those are not relevant to salvation. All this gospel needs is a good recording angel secretary who can record, save January 25, 1994, check down the list, never rejected Christ, still saved. 
A judgment is superfluous, irrelevant, unnecessary. And that's why he denied it 30 years ago. Not because Daniel is so hard to figure out, but because this gospel needs no judgment. It just needs a recording of accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. And so the judgment becomes a question. What else? Guess what? Ellen G. White becomes a question as well. I'm going to read you a letter that was sent from uh, parents of young people to Andrews University. How do we keep our teenagers in touch with Christ? For starters, Deep Six, Messages to Young People, and all other compilations, there is not a shred of gospel in the lot. Number two, listen carefully. Stop publishing Steps to Christ, which is simply another works approach to salvation. Now, why would good Seventh-day Adventist parents take that approach to how we save our young people and particularly to the book Steps to Christ? I'll take you back now 60 years to a gentleman who was an evangelical Christian in 1950 who published a magazine called Eternity Magazine and he reviewed the book Steps to Christ and he said the book is false in all its parts. Now, why is that? Because, my friends... The book Steps to Christ does not teach the gospel I've just gone over with you in the last 20 minutes. It is totally opposite. It has words like surrender and commitment and believing and obedience, that dreaded word. And that is totally foreign to this gospel. This gospel hates those concepts. They like them for witnessing and they like them for community living, but not for salvation not for our relationship with Christ. And that's why these parents thought that it would be a good idea to stop publishing the book, Steps to Christ. Questions about Ellen White. Questions about the law. If it is true that we are breaking the law constantly and sin is the transgression of the law, then how can we talk about the law being an issue at the end of time when every law keeper is a lawbreaker constantly? And every Sabbath keeper is a Sabbath breaker constantly by nature, if not by conscious choice. And these issues become questioned as well. And so another letter comes into the Adventist Review. Far too long we were taught that in order to be saved, we must keep the Sabbath and all of the other things associated with legalism. Far too long. And we move higher on that tree those much disputed areas of standards and health. They raise an interesting discussion every time we bring them up. Now obviously, obviously, those are areas of sanctification and the gospel salvation is about justification, this gospel says. So clearly, we should put those in a secondary category. Things good, things helpful, but not relevant to salvation. Not necessary for our relationship with Christ. They just come along, they come later to a degree. So let's not make a big fuss over these issues. Here's the way one author put it. God's salvation is so extravagant, so comprehensive, that it can't be increased or diminished by what we eat, drink, or wear. Increased or diminished, notice. Exercise and a good diet contribute to a long and useful life, but they don't add to our salvation. In other words, non-salvational issues. Productive, helpful, useful, but not salvational. 
Another person said this, we have Adventist oral traditions. Thou shalt not go to movies in a movie house. Thou shalt not dance socially. Even thou shalt not drink coffee. These extra doctrinal and lifestyle traditions are added by individual church members, by subgroups within the church, or by the force of tradition. Please notice the Bible isn't there, spirit of prophecy isn't there. It is by tradition or subgroups or individual church members that these various things are part of our church teachings. Another person said it this way, Members give assent to various standards and rules as a condition of membership in the organization. We need to keep in mind that this assent is not related to their salvation, only to being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So why do we tell people they shouldn't smoke and drink when they come into the Adventist church? Not because it's a salvation issue, but because that's a rule of the church. This is the way the church set its uh, standards way back 150 years ago. And if you want to be a part of our little club, you give up smoking and drinking. Oh, if you smoke and drink, you'll still be saved. That's not the point. You just remember that every club has its rules. And you, if you want to be part of us, these are our rules. Though I believe something to be correct from a religious perspective, it is not a matter of salvation. Maybe right, but it's not salvational. Well, there you have the way the gospel of Christianity has impacted doctrines and lifestyle issues of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Questions have been raised on every issue. And you please notice that the bottom of the whole tree is another word. What's that word? Way back when this gospel was first developed in the third and fourth centuries, everyone believed in predestination. There was no other option. God decided if you were going to be saved or lost and that was it, don't question him. Who are you to question God? And for centuries, that was the way of Christianity. It is strange, I think, that while predestination has slipped out, from under the foundation of this gospel, yet the gospel itself is still believed by most of Christianity. Now, I think I will get all of you to agree on what I'm going to say next. I believe the Bible teaches that God does not decide for us who is saved and lost. We make that decision. Amen. Free choice is the bottom line of the entire great controversy in the record of Scripture. Based on free choice, my friends, I believe a completely different gospel develops. And it's on the other side of your page. What is sin? In this gospel, sin is not an accident of birth. Sin is not being born on the wrong side of heaven's railroad tracks. Sin is not being in a situation that you have no control over and can do nothing about. In this gospel, sin is always, always a decision of the will, a choice of the mind. It is never a state without first being chosen. Then it becomes a state that you live in. But the other gospel says you are born a sinner before you ever made a choice anyway, one way or the other. This gospel says sin. The sin for which we are lost, the sin for which we are condemned, is always a decision of the will. We make the choice. Based on that, Jesus Christ, our Savior, can actually accept the working of the great law of heredity, believe it or not. He doesn't have to be exempted from heredity to somehow protect him from touching sin. Was Christ contaminated when he touched a leper, my friends? But yet Christianity believes he was contaminated by taking humanity upon himself. 
that if he took humanity the way it is, now today, in his time and since the time of Adam, he would have been a contaminated sinner. That's what Christianity teaches. I believe, and again remembering what I said, don't believe it because I say so. We will study this afternoon from the Word of God, and we will have outlines for you to read and take home and study for yourself. I believe that Jesus Christ took whatever heredity handed to every human being. And with that very, very defective brand of humanity, he showed the power of God. Amen. He showed what God could do. As our brother said last night, through Christ only is power, and there is no other power. Amen. Moving to the third point, justification. You notice the word sanctification is included there. In this gospel, both are critically important to the salvation process. It is not just one or the other. Because, you see, sanctification is just one part, one aspect of God's saving process. It's not being saved and then something. It is all one part of how God saves a sinner and transforms that sinner. They both go together. Well, let's put it this way. Let's say... You see a person in church give a marvelous testimony for Jesus Christ, how the Lord has done so great things in his life, and he just praises the Lord for sins forgiven and for victories gained and for jobs uh, acquired and for help in all manner of, of life. And you say, wow, that's a great testimony. I want to know more about this man. He has something that I'd like to have. And you decide to follow him home from church one day. And you notice a strange thing as he gets out of his car with his family. Apparently there's been a little something brewing in the car on the way from church because the moment he gets out of the car, he's yelling at the kids. They must have done something in the car. And all the way up the walkway, he gets more strident and yelling at his kids and his wife steps into the picture to kind of protect the wrath of the father from those kids. And all of a sudden he starts yelling at her and by the time they open the door, he's beating his wife. What do you think? Is something wrong with that testimony of justification by faith? Is there something lacking in what that man's experience seems to be? Is it sanctification perhaps? The Holy Spirit within him? Let's turn it around. Let's say a person is a very careful Sabbath keeper, a very faithful tithe payer, very careful in his church activities, living an upright life, living by all the standards of the church. But when you talk to that person face to face, there is no joy. There is no peace. There's no happiness. It's all about the terrible things that he's going through and how he can never find peace and happiness and everything is going wrong all the time. That's all he talks about. Is there something wrong with that experience? Is justification somehow being missed from that picture? The peace of guilt forgiven, taken away, removed? Both of them are like two currents in the ocean. They'd better flow together or we're in trouble. They must be in harmony with each other. Now, if you forget everything else I've said this morning, listen carefully for what I'm going to say right now. The difference between these two Gospels that we're describing, what would be one word, the one word, that would summarize the whole Christian Gospel on the left-hand side of your page? What is the word that tells you you are a saved individual? Justification, which means forgiveness. If you are forgiven, you are saved. End of discussion. Forgiveness equals salvation. 
Forgiveness is the key word in that gospel. And again, I want to share with you why. Again, reading from someone who believes that gospel. Justification is 100% Christ's own perfect meritorious work done for us. Sanctification follows 50-50 as a cooperative work. I work and God works. Justification is God's work. Sanctification is my work, 50% at least. And God pitches in a little bit. The other 50%. Therefore, obviously, justification is the only part of salvation that matters. That's the first gospel. Now, when God justifies us, does he do it 100%? Does he? We are completely forgiven, 100% free from our guilt? I agree. God justifies us 100%. But you see, God is somewhat limited. He can justify us 100%, but you know, he can't sanctify us 100%. Maybe 60% is all he can really do. The other 40% are too hard even for God. If you believe God can justify you 100%, the next question becomes, do you believe God can sanctify you 100%? Please notice I did not say, can you sanctify yourselves even 50%? Yet we have this great problem with God sanctifying us completely. How powerful is our God? How much can he do in a human experience? Can he do... Well, you say, but don't we do most of the work in sanctification? Hey, in justification, when you are forgiven, do you have to do something to be forgiven? Do you not have to believe in Jesus Christ? Is that not a condition? Do you not have to surrender your life to him and say, Lord, I'm yours? Do you not have to make that decision? Do you not have to say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did last week, last month? Is that not necessary repentance? Now, those are not meritorious, but are they conditions to receiving God's gracious, meritorious gift of justification? So you do something, don't you, to be justified. But in sanctification, well, let's look at that. How many Sabbaths can you keep by good intentions and good resolutions? Oh, you can keep a lot of Saturdays. You can keep them for the rest of your life. The greatest Saturday keepers in the Bible were the Pharisees. Of course they were. They had every rule for every situation. You had no questions about any particular situation you might come up against. They kept Saturday very well, but what did Jesus think of their Sabbath keeping? He spent a good share of his life trying to teach those Pharisees to become Sabbath keepers for the first time in their lives. Because, my friend, Sabbath keeping is a result of a holy life inwardly expressed in a holy Sabbath day outward. That's Sabbath keeping. And we cannot keep the Sabbath day, not even one, without an experience of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. So who does the Sabbath keeping bottom line, friends? It's the Holy Spirit and God. I make the decision. I choose to keep the Sabbath from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. I make that decision just like I make the decision to accept Jesus as my Savior. And then I say, Lord, I am absolutely helpless to even keep the first Sabbath in my life. Please enter my life and make me a holy person. And then we can keep the Sabbath day. So sanctification is 100% God's work, my friends. I just choose to make certain decisions that allow God to make that happen in my life. So, 
Justification and sanctification together. Now, if God can justify me 100%, and if he can sanctify me 100%, can he possibly just maybe perfect me 100%? Oh, no, we can't talk about that, can we? But you see, at that point, we are saying God doesn't have quite enough power to do what he did in Jesus Christ in my life. I want to share with you something right here that I think you'll enjoy. God works like an infinitely skillful physician. He can save and heal anyone who trusts him. He is not at all satisfied when we come to his office just to be forgiven. He purposes to bring us to the place where we won't have to ask for forgiveness anymore. He offers to heal that place where people do their thinking. Then they won't violate those rules anymore because they don't even want to. And all the bad habits are gone. To some, that sounds ominously like perfection. To many servant believers, that is the ultimately burdensome requirement. But servants are different than friends, he says. Friends see this, this as a promise. Friends don't want God to settle for anything less. Would you ask a physician not to heal you completely? Would you say 75% healing will be quite sufficient, thank you? <laughs> to servants who think of salvation as dealing with their legal problems, perfection is yet another requirement. To friends who think of salvation as healing the damage sin has done, perfection is an incredibly generous offer. Servants want to be completely forgiven. Friends want to be completely healed. About that matter of perfection, the heavenly physician might call after us as we walk away from his office. Don't worry about that. I've so designed my universe that it's a law. People become like the person they worship and admire. If you really stay my trusting friends, perfection will come. I'm not saying you won't struggle anymore, but the struggle won't be the same. Servants struggle to overcome sin by trying to stamp it out. Friends know they can only get rid of sin by crowding it out with the truth. If there's any hope, my friends, of that word that scares us to death, perfection, it is there. That it is a gift from God. And it is the ultimate, the most beautiful gift he has ever offered throughout 6,000 years of human history. All right, this gospel that I've just gone through with you. Someone said very nicely, we can summarize this gospel with one word. Remember the summary of the other gospel? Forgiveness. We can summarize the gospel with the word restoration. And now listen to the next words. This is by a former general conference president, by the way. This emphasis, what emphasis? Restoration. This emphasis makes Seventh-day Adventist theology unique. There is the everlasting gospel, my friends. That Adventism has been called to proclaim to the world because no one else is doing it. They are proclaiming forgiveness very well. They are not proclaiming healing and restoration very well at all. And Adventism has been called to give this message, the everlasting gospel to the world. And then he said, marrying strange theology with Adventist theology can justifiably be described as patchwork theology. And my friends, we've been patching together with the Christian understanding and the unique Adventist understanding, and it's a mishmash. Remember, can new wine be held in old wineskins? 
on up the tree. Do we need a judgment? Does it need to be settled before all the universe why some people are there that we don't think should have been there and why other people aren't there that we think should have been there? Because God needs to read the intents of the heart and their expressions in the life. And it needs to be clear for all beings everywhere. And what about Ellen G. White? I found this from Dwight Nelson, pastor at the Andrews University Church. If you've been in the Seventh-day Adventist Church very long at all, you've been tempted to not believe in this prophet stuff. In today's religious environment, it's embarrassing to be different. It's embarrassing to have a prophet in your movement. You're considered a bit odd, a little strange. And so, we have gone quiet about Ellen White. Without any fanfare or apology, we've simply gone silent. Don't quote her from the pulpit, we admonish each other. Just read the word, didn't she give some counsel to that effect? But the time has come this close to the end of Earth's civilization, to re-examine, reflect, re-study, and recommit ourselves to the mission and message of that woman, the most prolific female author in the history of the human race. It's time to stop apologizing for her ministry, both in our own movement and outside of it. And then he really, really stepped on our toes, and I was liking him so much. We shouldn't call these the red books. They're really the unread books. Why would he go and do that to us? Does it make much difference if we hold a bonfire in the back of our yards and burn those books so they don't trouble us anymore or if we leave them all in pristine condition on our bookshelves? Does it make much difference? And my friends, if we ignore them while saying we believe that God has sent a messenger for the Adventist movement and set her aside on everything that matters, we have rejected God's voice to us today. Well, what about the law? How many of us feel good about our law keeping? Here's something I ask kind of regularly. Is anyone willing to volunteer for me to follow them home with a video camera and videotape everything that you say or do for a period of one month and at the end of that month you will be my exhibit A that a person with a fallen nature can keep God's law perfectly? <laughs> I don't usually get many volunteers on that. So how can we say in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that the law can be kept when none of us are willing to stand up and say, here's how to do it, watch me? Where is our proof that fallen nature, like us, can obediently keep God's law all the time? Where is our proof? Jesus Christ is our only proof because no human being has demonstrated that as a proven reality. We've just pitched in and gone along for the ride on partial levels. But the one person who has proved that the law can be kept all during one's life is Jesus Christ. But what? What if he took an unfallen nature or even a partially fallen nature? What would that then prove? That a person with a, an unfallen nature, the angels, could keep God's law. It wouldn't prove a thing about us today. And that promise of the 144,000 would become empty words because no one in the history of this earth has ever kept the law of God perfectly in a fallen nature unless Jesus Christ showed the way. It's not just a theological issue, my friends. It's a matter of whether the Adventist church succeeds or fails in its mission.
and becomes the last generation, the 144,000. All right, up to the top of the tree. Almost done. If we are not saved by health reform, vegetarianism, whatever, then what's the point of it all? Let's say you find a person in the streets of your town, not in good shape, and you bring that person into your home because he is willing to learn a better way. And you teach him the principles of health reform, the right diet, the right spirit, the right attitude, water, everything, you know, the eight laws of health. And that person follows exactly what you have been telling him or her to do. And you know what? That person statistically will probably live seven to nine years longer than his or her next door neighbor if he follows your advice. And then the man dies of old age. And he wakes up in the wrong resurrection. At the end of the thousand years outside the city of God. Have we done that man any good? We gave him freedom from cancer. Isn't that what health reform is all about? He didn't die of a heart attack. We solved our, our we did our mission. My friends, is that what health reform is at all? Or is it not about that at all? The mind and the body are one unit, aren't they? What affects the mind will affect the body. What affects the body will affect the mind. Where is the place that God does his saving work? In the mind. What if the body is all clogged up with all kinds of bad blood and bad things that you're putting into your body? What is happening to that precious mind that you have? It's getting clogged up too. You know what health reform is all about? Getting the body cleaned up so God has a fighting chance to save our souls. End of discussion. That's what it's all about. Anything else is a side benefit. If you get seven more years of life, that's a side benefit. Getting the body cleaned up so God has a fighting chance to save the soul. So is health reform important or unimportant? How about standards of the church? Obviously, again, they don't save us. And remember now, I'm talking about all the standards put together. What we watch, our entertainment, our reading, our music, even what we wear, all of those things. What purpose do they have? Well, my friends, if you were to listen to your pastor and do what your pastor said 75% of the time and then listen to your favorite TV personality and do what he or she says 25% of the time, who will win that little battle, that tug of war? Your pastor doesn't have a chance. Because I've got this fall in nature, remember. And it just takes a little tug to pull me right on over. We have two voices communicating with us all the time, don't we? Are they both good communicators? Do they know very effective ways of reaching the mind? You know what standards are all about? To close down as far as humanly possible the avenues by which Satan can speak freely to the soul. Say it again. To close down as far as humanly possible the avenues by which Satan can communicate with our minds and fill our minds with his version of right and wrong. If we can close down a few of those channels, does that open a few more for God? And does that give God a better chance to save our souls? If God has more communication time with our minds, that's what standards are all about. Giving God a fighting chance to save our souls through Jesus Christ. 
I like what was uh, suggested by someone. It is sad to see the illusion popularized that such lifestyle issues as diet and adornment come from a, quote, religious perspective, but are, quote, not a matter of salvation. If the written counsel of God addresses a subject, it must be salvation-related or God would have left it alone. There's a good principle to follow. If the written counsel of God addresses a subject, it must be salvation-related or God would have left it alone. And so I want to close with a little suggestion from Messages to Young People, page 357. I would ask the youth of today who profess to believe present truth, wherein they deny self for the truth's sake. When they really desire an article of dress or some ornament or convenience, do they lay the matter before the Lord in prayer to know if His Spirit would sanction this expenditure of means? In the preparation of their clothing, are they careful not to dishonor their profession of faith? It is one thing to join the church and quite another thing to be united to Christ. And that's a decision that comes close to the hearts of every one of us, isn't it? We want to be united with Christ. And so we have looked this morning at two Gospels. Remember, not with any Bible evidence, not with any proof, but only for our thought and reflection. I believe that the devil is trying to derail the Seventh-day Adventist church, not on the basis of the immortality of the soul or of Sunday sacredness, but on the basis of a false gospel. I believe this is the biggest counterfeit that Satan has ever developed in the history of mankind. And if he can only get Seventh-day Adventists to drop this unique, special gospel that is called the everlasting gospel and the three angels' messages, then he will have that one last group in his hands and he continues to run this earth for another how many years? The only way he gets kicked off this planet is if God's children decide that they will live and share God's true gospel to the entire world and not be ashamed of it. And Satan knows that very well. That if that ever happens, his time is very short. And I want us desperately to be the last generation that will ever face Satan's onslaughts. I want us to be voting Satan out of office in this election time. Every sin we commit is a vote for Satan to keep on going. Every act of obedience is a vote for Christ to end Satan's rule on this planet. And that's what it is all about to be a Seventh-day Adventist. We have something unique. We have something special. Don't trade it away for a mess of pottage. Don't give it away for something that will cause us to be more liked by other churches or other even Seventh-day Adventists. This is something that needs to be the heart and soul of everything we stand for and everything we are. And so I will ask you to think seriously about this subject. I think it is the most important subject we will ever consider as Seventh-day Adventists. And again, remember, don't believe it because I said it this morning. Study it for yourself. We will continue our study this afternoon. Make sure you know from the Word of God what is a very unpopular teaching today throughout the Christian world, if you're going to believe it. Because as we were told earlier today, you will take some, uh, some acts of crucifying if you choose to believe this gospel from those who believe you are going down a very dangerous path. May God bless us. May God help us to be Seventh-day Adventists once and for all and for all eternity.